Did you see the Tyson Fury fight? Of course. Did you see the Tyson Fury versus Oscar Wilder fight? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how did it end? Um, uh, uh, Wilder got KO'd. Was that, that bitch on? Uh, uh, was that on Fox? Like a Fox pay per view? Uh, that, that I don't know. I'm not sure. I did not see the fight. Me neither. Couldn't afford it. If it was on DAZN, I could watch that because my mm-hmm. brother has a subscription to Som- it. Sometimes that should be on Showtime too. Correct? Ooh, Showtime boxing. Yeah, it does. <laughs> And Brian Gumble has something to do with it at that point. Mm, good or bad thing. I like Brian Gumble. That's good. What up, Gumbo? Gumble to Gumble. Hit mm-hmm. me up, boy. He said, hit me up, boy. Hit me up, Brian. <laughs> I'll come work for you. I don't care. I'll be one of your, like, sideline reporters or whatever. Getting coffee and shit. I'll be your PA. I don't care. Hold us some nuts. I'll hold your nuts, Brian Gumble. <laughs> Hopefully there's pecans. I'll hold your mixed nuts. But. And your big old nuts, too, if you want. A.K.A. coconuts. <laughs> I think he eats a lot of coconut. Mm. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bumblebutt Podcast X. X, X, X. Today, my name is Adam, the big poop, as they call me. Ooh, A-bomb. Uh, sitting across from me, as ever, is Herschel. Hello, Raiden. What up, H-bomb? How's it going, buddy? What up, my dude? Did you have a good week? Actually, yeah, I did. Did you get everything accomplished, both personally and professionally? No. Does that ever happen? No. Okay. But I definitely uh, put my best foot forward. Oh, it happened once. When, when was this? God worked really hard for six days, and on the seventh day, he, he rested. Uh, Chris Rock said he <laughs> he had a little joke when he said, go to reason God rested on the seventh day because he fucked up or something, so he had to take a break. <laughs> Reset his mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do? Give me a detail. Oh, you know what? I don't know, but I'm pretty know. sure I put my best foot for it. That's all that matters. Yeah. I mean, as long as you weren't fucking anybody over. No, nah, I wasn't. I got I got a little integrity. and Good. Keep it humble. Yep. Keep it integral. Yep. My week was fantastic. It started at the end of last Bumble Between the Bumble X recording. Mm. Got got on a plane, headed out for McCarran International mm, Airport. Yeah, How was that? At Las Vegas, Nevada. It was amazing. Kylie picked me up. Mm, uh, Kylie. First, so I landed at Terminal 1, and usually I land at Terminal 3 and have to get the train to Terminal 1. It's right. all in the airport, right? Well, this time, I didn't realize I landed at Terminal 1, and I got on the train for Terminal 3, and Kylie was waiting for me at where I was supposed to be at Terminal 1. We were sending each other pictures, like, how are we so lost? (laughs) And then uh, I realized my mistake, and she, like the the saint she is, drove to Terminal 3 to pick me up. She fixed it for you. She always fixes stuff for me. That's good. Then we went to Sushi Mon later on. Best sushi in Nevada. Go there. What, Sushi Mon? Is that a Jamaican sushi? Sushi Mon! Or like a Pokemon sushi. Oh, yeah. okay. No, I have no idea what it means. I have no idea. Yeah. Sushi Mon. <laughs> it's fucking know. delicious. But it's right next to South Point Casino and Hotel. Las Vegas' premier mm-hmm. off-strip casino. I'll tell you what. I've been to Vegas f- nigh on... 11 times at this uh-huh. point, right? Okay. The Strip's great. Uh-huh. Uh, you go around there, you walk around your Disneyland, you see all the bright lights and the shiny mm-hmm. stuff. If you like gambling, they tune them machines up a little bit at South Point. You mm. get to, you get better chance at wins. We were down there for 40 bucks. We were down there for six hours. Mm-hmm. Six hours. On Strip, forward. 40 bucks is one machine. You know Ooh. what I'm saying? I don't know. I feel like they loosen the slots mm-hmm. the further away you get from the Disneyland mm. portion of it. Mm. That's what I think anyway. But fantastic you vacation. That money. That's it. That's it. And they know you got it if you're on the strip. They know you got it. Well, don't be on the strip if you don't got it. I guess South Point, maybe, maybe the off-strip casinos cater more towards locals, not mm-hmm. tourists. So maybe they're a little nicer to them mm-hmm. because they live there. And they're not just flying in to blow a bunch of cash and yeah, then flying we out. To, we just, uh, all the people that want to gamble away they rent. That's right. That's right. And try to make it back real Ooh, quick. Ooh, Christmas Eve down at Mystic Lake Casino in Minnesota. You'll see a lot of parents crying outside the Ooh, front doors really? because they gambled away their kids' Christmas money. God, trying to but, double it up. But at least they know they only did that because they know there's a good chance that they could get more out of their money. No, it's because they're fiends. They're yeah. gambleholics. 
They have problems. Hey, okay. No, nah, but what I'm trying to say is, can you win at Mystic Lake Casino? I was kind of. I'll tell you Greaseball what. Greaseball, too. Mystic, honestly, Treasure Island, you have better odds at Treasure Island than Mystic, but mm-hmm. both of them are bad compared to South Point. Well, anyway, that's Gambleholics Anonymous here <laughs> on uh, Bumblebutt Podcast. All right, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> hope you had a good, hope you enjoyed the show, guys. We'll see you later. <laughs> no, ladies and gentlemen, and Herschel. Yes, sir. You're all of the above. Today, we will be discussing one of Britain's most notorious criminal cases. Britain? That's right, baby. We're throwing in a bunch of curveballs today, Herbal. Yeah. What's the one thing you've been asking me to do since we started? Um, if I can remember correctly, women serial killers. Yes, Kershaw. So, first curveball. And we not go get that today. <laughs> this is a twelve to six curveball. Okay, we're going. Cool. We're going right. straight down. This right. one's breaking straight down. All right. This is a fifty-nine mm-hmm. and a half foot curveball. Mm-hmm. It's a couple. Mm. It's a woman. And a man. Here's the next curveball. We're going to go a knuckle curve. All right. Mm. This one's breaking towards the pitcher side. Okay. Okay. It's in Britain. Yeah. We're going international, bitches. Yep. Just like the NFL. This one right now. And the third one is a uh, 99 mile an hour fastball right at eye level. And the batter swings because he's confused. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Strikeouts. Strikeouts. This case is called the Moore's Murders, which were carried out by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley between July 1963 and October 1965 in and around Manchester, England. Mm, That sounded German. Manchester. Manchester. You know uh, Jax from Sons of Anarchy? Mm. Charlie Hunnam, the actor's name? Yeah, I know that is. He's from Manchester. Mm. He's a tough, tough lad. The victims were five children. Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans, aged between 10 and 17, and at least four of them were sexually assaulted. This is going to get cringy. Five? Five five total. Five kill count, yeah. 10 to 17, that's bad. That's bad. But what's worse, 10 is the lower lower end of the range, yeah. This is still cringy, (laughs) please, but let's do it. All right, let's do it. On October 7th, 1965, 17-year-old David Smith and his child wife walked into the Hyde police station with mm. an incredible story. I say child wife because he was 17, his wife was 16, and it was a little different back then in Britain. You yeah. got married young. Yeah. David assured his wife in the waiting room that he'd be right back after telling the police something, and the young husband and wife would be on their way to their planned vacation. Right. Hours later, when Superintendent Talbot arrived at the Hyde Police Station, he was walked right into the interrogation room where the couple still sat nervously drinking tea. They would be very late for their vacation. David Smith and his <laughs> wife, Maureen. That's pers- the thing they thought about. <laughs> you guys hurry up and get this, get this goddamn vacation. <laughs> I want to go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> David Smith and his wife, Maureen, proceeded to tell a tale that would blow police's fucking minds. Mmm. Wow. I like I like the emoji one with the, it's like an atomic bomb coming mm. out of their head. That's pretty good. Do you use that a lot? Not as much as I should. Mm. I think serial killer would probably use that emoji a lot. Mind blown. Yeah, yeah. Or somebody that's about to suicide with a gun from mm. the top of their head. Gun emoji. Gun emoji. <laughs> yeah. Remember when they replaced it with a now it's a green squirt gun. Ooh. It used to be a, a real like Beretta. Emoji. Damn. The night before, David Smith's sister-in-law, Myra Hindley, had visited David and Maureen's house and asked if David would walk her home as she was afraid to go in the dark. When they arrived at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, Manchester, she asked him to come inside as her boyfriend Ian Brady had some mini bottles of fancy wine for him to take home. Mm. He agreed, and after entering... Myra left David to pick out the bottles he wanted. That's what's up. That's too much of a good lick, sound like. Honestly, yes. But if your sister-in-law came up and said yeah, that. Yeah, you will really totally believe her. And you're 17. You're like, ooh. I'm stoked. Free fancy wine to just walk this lady home. That's a lick. That's a lick. I'd do that in a heartbeat. If I was a drinking man. And I'm pretty sure it's dark as fuck out there, too. Dark AF. I've never been to Manchester, but it seems like the place to be dark. Especially in this time, it was like a shipbuilding town, so it was rough. 
Like mm. the people working there were rough and tumble. Yeah. Seamen. Because they might actually not even be from Manchester, Dan, right. if that's the case. Pirates. It's a port town. Ooh. I mean, it's 1965, so take pirates with a grain yeah. of salt. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. But but those type of seafaring, you know, like The Wire, season two, those guys that would just like bail yeah, off the ship yeah. and run away because yeah. <laughs> they, they're super illegal and probably wanted on three continents. The next thing David heard was a long, loud scream. Then Myra was yelling for David to come into the living room. When he did, David saw Myra's boyfriend, Ian Brady, holding what looked like a life-size rag doll. It looked like a scarecrow or something. And it wasn't until Ian flung it at the couch and it thudded down to the floor that David realized it was actually a young man and not a sex doll at all. As the boy lay sprawled face down near the couch, Ian stood over him, legs apart, and brought an axe down directly into his head. The young man groaned. It was low and raspy. Lifting the axe high above his head, Ian brought it down a second time. The man stopped groaning. Now there was only gurgling coming from deep in his chest. Ian placed a gray comforter around the victim's head and wrapped a piece of electrical wire around his neck, repeatedly yanking it and chanting, You fucking dirty bastard, over and over. Damn, what did he do? When the gurgling finally stopped, Ian looked up to his wife and said, That's the messiest one yet. Bitch, messiest one yet? (sighs) Myra then made the trio a cup of tea, with her and her boyfriend joking about the look on the young man's face when Brady hit him with the axe the first time. They kept reminiscing about old kills, laughing about another occasion when a policeman had confronted Myra as the couple had been burying another victim out on Saddleworth Moor. Ian had told David that he had killed people before, but David just wrote it off as a sick fantasy. Damn. But it was very real. Hell yeah, these motherfuckers are twisted. Like the tea. Like twisted tea? God, oh my... Is that the booze one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I remember right as I was wrapping up my stint as a drunk, the, <laughs> they were coming out with like uh, hard soda, not the hard mm-hmm. lemonades, but it was like dad's dad's pop or something like that. I Do you I remember, remember that? Yep, yeah, I think I remember something like that. But now it's all, all about that seltzer game, Yeah, they got which the I true, get 100% because I'm all about... It right. the, yeah, truly... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Kylie loves those things. Ooh, I can't. I don't see it. It's it's like a from what I've smelled because yeah. I've I've sniffed one. Yeah. It's, it smells like a wine cooler. Did and it, I was I've never been into wine coolers. Did a bead of sweat come down? Yeah, just drooling. Nah, that's good. <laughs> no, I don't. But give a uh, fuck. that's crazy. The Trulies. Yeah, I don't see what's the big deal about them. But have they, a Lacroix. Yeah. Put some vodka in a Lacroix. You'll Ooh. be fine. I bet that would taste terrible. Yeah, but uh, don't all alcohol taste terrible? Not bourbon neat, Herschel. Bourbon neat Ta- is terrible. Delicious. That shit go get you gone, though. <laughs> it has to be drunk as fuck. Yeah. Well, you learn to think it's delicious anyway. Because you know it's going to get you fucked up. Even though you know it tastes also like uh, floor cleaner. But to say like Trulies is something these two people would probably be drinking. I bet these two would fuck around with Trulies, especially because they had like a case of mini wine. So that like mini wine would probably be the Truly of the day. I would say like wine taster sets, you know, all the fancy. Imagine him bringing eggs down on his head after he's sipping the Truly and shit, and then joking about it. Ooh, that'd be fucked. That one was the missiest one yet, love. (laughs) You're fucked up, man. We'll find out how more fucked up they are very soon. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's already fucked up already. David Smith was horrified and increasingly scared for his own safety. He decided too. the best thing he could do was to keep calm and go along with what they wanted. <laughs> he helped them clean the mess, tie up the body, and store it in the bedroom upstairs. It wasn't until early, early in the morning that he'd be that he would be able to escape, promising to come back in a few hours to help cut up the body and dispose of it. Hell yeah. I wonder was how, how on board was he? Like, fuck yeah on board? Like, yeah, let's do this shit. I know y'all. Why didn't y'all been tell me y'all yeah. was doing this? I would have been in this party Dude, right yeah. now. We'd have been drinking Trulies together, mm. bro. Like, mm. stop. I want to bring the axe down next yeah. time. Yeah, I'm gonna, when I get out, I'm going to bring us back some aprons yeah. that says we love yeah. serial killing. We love it. We'd love it. All right, cool. We good with that? All right, cool. I'll, I'll get right another back. case of truly. Yeah, I'll be right 
back. See ya. Anybody want spaghetti? Meatballs. <laughs> spaghetti? Meatballs? Once David was safely back home, he projectile vomited everywhere, telling Maureen everything he'd seen, and the couple went to a public phone to call it into the police. Mm. Superintendent Talbot stood straight up from the table and walked out of the interrogation room, followed by Detective Sergeant Carr and about a dozen other police. They wordlessly got in their cars and drove straight to 16 Wardlebrook so Avenue. So dude was able to leave. Yeah, so he convinced was... them good enough. He must have been doing that then. That was him. He convinced them. David convinced them. He's like, I'll be right back. I'll get some supplies. He must have really. I got to go check in with Maureen to make sure she's not freaking out. I'll be right back. And then he, him he... and Maureen went to the police immediately. He definitely get that uh, tall statue of the man. He wins, bro. The Oscar? Yes, sir. He The tall statue of the man. man. Yeah, the golden fucking man statue. He gets it. Congratulations, David. I'm, For real. I'm very yeah. happy you got out He do. He had to. There was no confrontation when Myra opened the door to the police. She even reluctantly gave Talbot the keys to the upstairs bedroom, which was the only room in the house that was locked. In the room was a young man wrapped in a gray comforter, the axe that David Smith described as the murder weapon was also in the same room, leaned up against the wall. Yeah. Ian Brady was arrested on the spot at the station. Ian told police that there had been an argument between himself, David, and the victim, mm-hmm. who was identified as 17-year-old Edward Evans. A fight broke out, which got out of control. Smith hit Evans and kicked him several times. Then Brady used the hatchet to finish Evans. According to Ian Brady, it was him and David Smith alone that tied up hmm. the body, and Myra had absolutely nothing to do with it. I wonder how did she look? I wonder, was Myra smoking? You know, the Manchester women be... She was pretty mousy, but at this point, this is mean? at the end of their run, so she was looking like a Nazi, actually. Oh, terrible then. We'll talk about it, but yes, she... She completely changed her appearance and attitude once she started dating Ian Brady. I mean, yeah, that'd do it to you once she started. He loved Nazis. And this was like the 60s, so that was still pretty fresh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nazis were like 40s to almost 1950. Mm-hmm. So he was a Nazi head. He was a Nazi head. Yeah. Yeah. He had them, he even had records like like of Hitler speeches and stuff like that. Was this, um, I'm pretty sure we have figured it out, but any of these killers associated with some of the Nazi? Nah. Okay, cool. Nah. They weren't, uh, you know, these fucking, shit. <laughs> these like, whatever, Aryans or whatever, they don't even believe that shit. They just want an excuse for their hatred is all it is. Mm. They want a flag to rally their hatred around. Okay. They don't believe in like fascism and stuff. No fascism. No fascism for me, please. When Myra was questioned, she supported and filled in Brady's story. She claimed she'd been horrified and frightened by the fight. She wasn't arrested until four days later after police found a three-page written letter in her car that described in excruciating detail how she and Brady planned to carry out the murder of Edward Evans. Mm. With his name in it and everything. So, like, what? Are you stupid? Answer, yes. (laughs) She's fucking stupid. This would have been the end of the investigation with the prosecutors and public fully satisfied, but Smith had told police of Brady's claim that he had buried other bodies out on Saddleworth Moor. The Moors had popped up all too often during the investigation. Mm. A 12-year-old girl named Pat Hodge had told police that she would often go with Myra and Ian on picnics at the Moors, Mm -hmm. and there were countless photos of the couple in the Moors, hanging all around their apartment. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure this wasn't the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like Tourist friendly spot? Well, no. I'm talking about as far as the serial killer goes in London. I knew it was more serial killers sure. in London. Sure. Even, even, but are these like I've covered a bunch more, of them. I wouldn't say successful, but, you know. Prolific. Yeah, there you go. Famous. There you go. Yeah, My absolutely. Dude. Yeah. Was these was these one of them? Yeah, this is one of the this is one of the like the marquee British serial killing mm. cases. I would say. Yeah. What's the one that they always put on TV about the serial? Doctor Jekyll? Uh, no, Hyde? Jack the Do- Ripper. Oh, okay. Was that is that is that real? Or yeah, is that, Jack the Ripper. Okay, real. okay. Well, based on what about 
Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is the one. He's like turns back and forth. Yeah, he does. If he doesn't drink his potion, that's on me. But that, but I thought that was based or no, not even based so. off shit. Okay, nah. it's probably like based off mental illness. You know what I mean? Bipolar, schizophrenia. No like man, that. it definitely does sound like some me based off serial killers. If you think about it, I think it's me because he was killing though. He was serial killer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. His dark passenger took over. It was like a serial killer. I definitely killer. thought these two was mixed together. Jack the Ripper and... Dr. Jack. Yeah, I swear to God. Yeah. Like, I thought that that was... I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. They all talk like, oh, cheerio, go for I mean, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I knew they was all from that area. Yeah, they're all from an, yeah. a silly little island far across the Atlantic from yeah. us. That's what they are. It's <laughs> silly. They're Lilliputians over there. They're not silly. They're pretty silly. Oh, Lord, Governor. <laughs> Once Ian Brady and Myra Hindley's favorite spot was pinpointed, the digging began in earnest. Mm-hmm. Cops believed that the bodies of four children who had disappeared over the last two years would turn up here. On October 10th, 1965, three days after David Smith walked into Hyde Park Police Station with his incredible story, they found the body of 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Mm-hmm. Leslie had disappeared without a trace on Boxing Day, 1964. That's uh, December 26th. Mm. 11 days later, the body of 12-year-old John Kilbride was found. Mm. He disappeared without a trace November 11th, 1963, over two years previous. Damn. In 1965, this was a unique and utterly shocking case. It was the first time in British history that a lady had been involved in killing partnership that also involved serial sex murders of children. The public couldn't even wrap their heads around how a woman could take part in such vicious crimes. This made the crime seem even more evil and unforgivable. And they probably still think, she didn't have nothing to do with it. She was manipulated, which guess what? She was. That's a trap card for sure. Mm. A trap card laying in wait. But in her case, I honestly believe her manipulation was 100% willing. She wanted yeah. it. She wanted to she submit. She was just as crazy as him. She, like, wanted a, a strong man to submit to. You know what I mean? Yeah. What made Myra and Ian do these heinous things? When you dig into it, Ian Brady's childhood history is full of the red mm. flags common among all serial killers. But in Myra's case, there were few insights to be drawn. She was a seemingly normal child who had grown into an adult so perverted that she would climax from the sexual abuse and murder of children. Yeah, what a sicko. Myra was born July 23rd, 1942 in Gorton, an industrial area in Manchester. She was the eldest child born to Nellie and Bob Hindley. <laughs> Nellie? Nellie Hindley. This kid hot dare. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, Nellie. I was thinking about Nellie from that uh, shitty house on... Did you watch that haunted Haunting of Hill House on Netflix? Uh, yeah, House she on Hill. She was the broken neck lady. You remember that one? Yeah, House on Honey Hill, no. I think it's called The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, no, no, no. no. Okay, it was a series on Netflix. Uh, mm. They gave Nellie a burger at Burger King, too, by the way. Nellie's got a Burger yeah. King? Yeah. He's got a Burger King? No, you know how to get a burger special. Oh, a sandwich? Yeah. What's his call? I don't know. It's Ooh. not Nelly. I think it's his name. I'll try it. I'll that's try a Nelly burger. That was definitely off subject, though. So. Well, that's fine with me. No, it's not. No, we were it's talking not about Nelly. We was. We was talking about family's name. I mean, oh, dude. From 1942 to 1945, mm-hmm. Myra's father, Bob, served in a parachute infantry division fighting the Nazis. So for her first three years, Myra was raised alone by Nelly. They lived with Nellie's mother, Ellen Mayberry, who would look after Myra while Nellie went to work as a machinist. Because, of course, in World War II, men are away. Women have to go into the factories and do the work. That's just how it goes. After the war, Bob came home and the small family bought a small home just around the corner from Nellie's mom. Bob was finding it difficult reacclimating into civilian life and would spend all the hours he wasn't working down at the local bar. When their second child, Maureen, was born in August 1946... He was at the bar. He was. (laughs) Bob and Nellie found the workload of two children too much, so they sent their eldest to live with Grandma down the road. Mm. The move to Grandma solved many of the family's problems. 
Grandma was no longer lonely. Bob and Nellie were much calmer, only mm. raising one kid, and Myra fully enjoyed the devoted attention of her grandmother. However, Myra and her father's relationship never really got off the ground. He was very bad at showing his emotions, and his absence during Myra's formative years created a vacuum that would never be filled. Mm. So she blaming it on an absent dad? I would say not her psychologist would mm-hmm. later blame mm-hmm. it on her absent dad. I think that has something to do with it. If your dad's just gone. I say like they're just <laughs> looking for a reason. Yeah. You, you have with, to with the, these Even people. with the man serial killers with the whole mom issues. Well, that's just proven. I mean, that's just proven. But, I, but I'm saying like for them to say, oh. Like, there's a complete recipe in place for if you follow these steps, your kid will Definitely be a serial, be a serial killer. killer. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, absent father? No, yeah. he's on the path to be Bed a wedding, serial killer. arson, killing small animals. Those are the main three. If those three mm-hmm. happens, you will kill a person. Mm, killing animals. Do you really have to bed kill wedding, animals nowadays? Bedwetting into late age, arson, and killing small animals. But do you have to kill animals nowadays, though? Can't yeah. you just get on GTA or still have Oh, to... that's, that's not the same. It's you got to watch same. life leave a creature's yeah. eyes. You got to watch it, like, struggle. That's what they get <laughs> off on. Mm-hmm. They let it come back and do it again. That's our boy David Carpenter. That's why he made those bras, so he could choke the fuck out of them, let it off so they could come back to life, beg some more, and then choke the fuck out of them again. Myra started kindergarten at Peacock Primary School at age five. She was considered a mature and sensible girl, but her attendance was poor due to her grandma's tendency to let her stay home with her for almost any reason. Her truancy led to her not getting good enough grades to attend the private high school. Instead, she went to Ryder Brow Secondary Modern, where her poor attendance continued, but she was able to keep an A grade point average. Mm. During high school, she bloomed as a creative writer and poet. She also loved sports and was an especially gifted swimmer, but she wasn't considered particularly feminine or attractive and was given the nickname Square Ass because of her broad (laughs) hips. It's fucked up. She was also teased about the shape of her nose. Myra's reputation as a mature and sensible girl meant that she was a very popular babysitter in her neighborhood during her teens. Mm Mm-hmm. Parents and kids were delighted to lock down Myra as their sitter on date yeah. night. <laughs> yeah, they know they, the husbands, they go, fuck them. Yeah, the babysitter. square ass, big nose. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Come watch my kids. Because I know you could get a ride home from my husband. He's going to hurry up and get you home and come back. She was great with the kids and demonstrated a genuine love of children. Mm-hmm. At the age of 15, Myra befriended a little, fragile, 13-year-old timid boy named Michael Higgins. Mm-hmm. She protected him as if he were her younger brother. In her mind, she'd already built the lifelong friendship that her and Michael would share. Mm-hmm. She was distraught when Michael drowned in a reservoir, Ooh. which was used as a swimming hole by the local children. Her grief was magnified because she had turned down his invitation to go swimming that day. She believed that her strong swimming skills could have saved, saved his him. life. Absolutely. I mean, we don't know how he drowned either, though. Yeah. He could have ate something and caught the cramping. Oh, yeah. You, 30, minutes, 30 minutes? 30 minutes <laughs> after you eat? If you eat a tuna but sandwich. He, but absolutely, though. If you so, don't turn into a tuna. She would She would have been fine. It's, yeah, she would have dragged his little Melvin ass out told his ass don't even go down that way. Yeah. Like, no, that's not for you. Yeah. But that's what happens when you, like, take on a protectorate role over somebody mm-hmm. when you don't have control over their lives. I hate it. It'll kill you. I hate it. I think that's what parents do. Well, no, that's why I hope they do apocalyptic shit to happen because I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what I'll do. All of them? No, me. But, dude, well, just I'm just out. Yeah, you ain't got no kid on <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm out. Yeah, but you got kids. Look at uh, the road. Well, look, if you, you go well, road? I know that now. So if it's apocalyptic time, you coming with me. All right, let's do it. You need to help me. All right, let's do it. I'll be, I'll, I'll help. Yeah, I mean, because if you want to waste your life like that anyway, <laughs> you might as well go in, throw your, throw your, well, I could do this, throw my body at something, mm, something. Mm, mm. I could use you as a, a, a life card. A shield. Adam, you're up. Like, oh. Ready? <laughs> Used to. Hauling <laughs> ass. Yeah. Hauling <laughs> oats and all of that. Hauling oats. <laughs> Over the next few weeks, Myra was inconsolable. She would switch between constant sobbing and staring straight ahead, almost catatonic. 
Damn. She went to church nightly, dressed in all black morning garb to light a candle for Michael, mm-hmm. and collected money from neighbors for a graveside wreath. Okay. Her parents became worried by what they saw as an overreaction. They told Myra that she really needed to control herself. I don't know. I think a person close to her dying, dude, you don't think something... You gotta start moving on, though. Yeah, you do. But you can't tell nobody how to grieve. That's true. But if it lasts a long time, it might be That's mental sad. illness and it may unhealthy. Be. Yeah. It may be, bro. But you gotta get us some help. You can't just tell her straight up. Yeah. You need to move on. Yeah, you need to calm your ass down. Yeah. That's not gonna help anybody. Yeah, take this. <laughs> Call me in the Drink morning. Drink this truly. <laughs> Give her the taste. <laughs> Her grief was clear as day in her conversion to Roman Catholic, Michael's religion, and the complete deterioration of her schoolwork. It wasn't long after Michael's death that she left school. She wasn't considered bright enough to complete her O-levels, even though she had an IQ of 107, which is mm. gifted. O-levels. That's what? like the, uh, uh, that's like your, to see if you can go on to even higher education, or if you mm-hmm. just go out and get a job. You okay. know what I mean? In Harry Potter, they're called owls. O-W-L-S. Mm. It's funny. And they, is that the only term used out? O-levels, yeah. yeah. That's that's uh, that's more wacky island shit. <laughs> more wacky knucklehead island shit. Well, I'm pretty shit. sure we got something called that, too. We don't got no O-levels. We got, like, Colleges SATs and, and high school. ACTs and... Oh, okay. PSATs. Iowa test. Iowa testing. Oh, I hate it. I will fucking test. I, th- I was just bored. I was like, this is so dumb. Why do I got to sit here for so long? So you passed it. The Iowa test? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You didn't? Hey, look, we're not going to talk about that here. Herval, Southside Chicago schools. That's not fair. We're not going to talk you about You weren't prepared for your, for your O-levels. <laughs> for your Even Iowa that test. O-level. You weren't prepared. We it's t- like the schools in Balmer. It's, a, it's, it's, it's like this and that. It's like, like the schools on like that and, uh, But you know, it's not necessarily, it could be anything. Not that you don't know it, it's just. You weren't taught it. Not necessarily. It's, you may have taught it, it's just. It was bad schooling. You know, it's a lot going into when it's schools overcrowded. I've seen the wire. Yeah. You could just get. I know what happens. It could just get skipped over so fast, you could slip through that crack. And you ain't got no Bunny Colvin to get the worst of the worst out of the classrooms that are causing distractions and put them in a private classroom where they can actually learn something. Mm-hmm. But you tried to do it with the hamster dam, put the distractions in this area and did that for people could live their regular lives. You know what? I never put that together. That hamster dam was the mm-hmm. training program for his school program. Yeah. Because he made a hamster dam in the basement. Yep. Well, you're, that's brilliant. That's the problem with that show, is you you find something new every time. Yeah. Even if you don't watch it, you find it. <laughs> yep. Myra's first job out of school at age 16 was as a junior clerk at Lawrence Scott and Electrometers, mm-hmm. an electrical engineering company. It was during this time that she began bleaching her hair and wearing dark makeup in order to look older. Mm. On her 17th birthday, she got engaged to local boy Ronnie Sinclair, who worked as a tea blender at the local Mm co-op. The more Myra thought about this plan for an ordinary life, the more she hated the lifestyle she would be forced to conform to. She knew that after the wedding, they would have to buy a small house and then start popping out kids, and then it would be years and years of trying to scrape by while her husband spent all of their money at the bar. Damn. This wasn't the life for Myra, so she called off the engagement before any of that could happen. (laughs) She couldn't imagine such a mundane life for herself. Her search for a more exciting life began with an application to both the Navy and the Army, but she never actually sent them in. Mm -hmm. She considered moving to America to work as a nanny, but she never followed through with that either. Myra went off to London in search of a job, but that didn't pan out. Two years would pass before something new and exciting would finally fall into her lap. In January 1961, she met Ian Brady for the very first time. Mm, Of course, a motherfucker that don't want you, that's not the norm. Oh, yeah. When you're searching for uh, for any exit, for anything that's not like work at McDonald's, have kids, not not see their husband ever, fucking he's drunk all the time. Was that the norm? Yeah, yeah. That's still the norm, isn't it? We've just kind of ground down the rough edges a little bit. Yeah, we got smartphones now. Yeah. Dad goes and, and, and craves solitude. Mom takes care of the kids, right? I guess. 
It's like the the Flintstones, but we are kind of the Flintstones, aren't we, Herschel? Yeah, we kind of. It's still new age dads out here, though. To yes. Take care of the household. Oh, I'd be a new dad right now. Yeah, new age pop. New age pop. Ian was born January 2nd, 1938, in one of the roughest slums in all of Glasgow, called Gorbels. His single mother, Peggy Stewart, worked as a tea room waitress in a hotel and would always sign her name as Mrs. Stewart, as being an unmarried mother at this time was met Mm. with strong disapproval in the best case and open contempt in the worst. Peggy never told anyone who Ian's father was, only that he was a journalist for a Glasgow newspaper who had died a few months before Ian was born. With no partner to help her, Peggy worked every spare hour that was offered to her. She would sometimes leave baby Ian at home all alone while she worked. Didn't take long for her to realize that she couldn't cope with this baby by herself. To solve the problem, Peggy put out an advertisement in the paper looking for a quote-unquote permanent babysitter to take Ian into their home and provide the care and attention that she was not able to give him. Pretty much adopted. An unofficial adoption. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's smart, though. No, it's it's basically selling your baby. Oh, uh, now kind look, of. selling. Yeah, it's you, not for profit because she also signs over the welfare checks too. Well, see, that's the thing though. If you feel like you can't take care of that child, then it is. You can go the official way though, because oh this yeah, can no, go no, yeah, absolutely very wrong. You can. Yeah. I'm just talking about just adoption period. Agreed. Like, Adopt your kid. If you can't take care of that child, put it up. Unfortunately, yeah, put it up. Because if they gonna be struggling growing up as a kid. If it's going to be starving, yeah. Get, get, yeah. get it out of there. Yeah. Don't fuck it up. I don't like adoption, but I do you like adoption. Base I don't want the kid to be fucked up. Yep. Yeah. All right. Mary and John Sloan answered the ad. They had four kids of their own and seemed trustworthy and caring. At just four months old, Ian was unofficially adopted by the couple. Mm-hmm. Peggy signed over the welfare payments and arranged to come visit every Sunday... Every week, Peggy would come around with gifts for her growing son, but she never told him that she was his mother. Mm-hmm. As time passed, Peggy's visits became less frequent and finally stopped altogether when Ian was 12. Peggy had moved with her new husband to Manchester. Damn. It's fucked up. It is. Not really knowing what was up with his real mother or where he stood with the Sloans, Ian always felt he didn't belong. Despite the Sloan's attempts to provide a loving environment, Ian showed no response to their cares and attentions. All throughout his childhood, he was filled with rage, loneliness, and difficulty. Mm-hmm. His temper tantrums would often end with him banging his head off the floor. Damn. So he'd be knocking himself out. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. In elementary school, Ian Brady was considered by his teachers to be gifted, but he never applied himself fully. The other children saw him as different, secretive, and an outsider. He didn't like sports like the other boys and was considered a sissy. The Sloanes and Brady remember an incident when he was just nine years old. It was to be Ian's first outing out of the Gorbals. Mm-hmm. They went to the moors of Loch Lamond, where they spent the day picnicking. After lunch, the Sloanes napped in the grass. When they awoke, Ian was gone. They saw him standing 500 yards away at the top of a steep slope. For an hour, he stood there, silhouetted against the giant sky. They called and whistled to him, but couldn't get his attention. When the two Sloan boys finally were sent to climb the hill and fetch him, he told them to go on home without him. He wanted to be alone here forever. (laughs) On the way home on the bus, he was talkative for the first time in his life. For Ian, the time spent alone on that hillside had been a profound experience. One that would influence him into adulthood. He had felt himself alone at the center of a vast, limitless territory. Mm -hmm. It was his. Only his. He was filled with a sense of power and strength. In the midst of all that emptiness, he was the master and the king. (laughs) The master and the king. It's fucking rad. (laughs) Yeah, you need some fucking music after this shit. Do, 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 I can feel it. I thought you were going to go more Lord of the Rings. Actually, I wanted to go in many different places. I just didn't know what. Well, Phil Collins will work. At age 11, Ian passed his entrance exams into Shawlands Academy, a school for kids with above-average intelligence. Mm -hmm. He would never realize his full potential as he was lazy, didn't apply himself, and was a constant troublemaker. Oh, sound like a kid. 
He started smoking cigarettes, stopped turning in his homework, and Ooh. soon got in trouble with the police. Ah. At age 11, started smoking God cigarettes. damn, that's what I'm saying. That's a bad boy. Man. Between the ages of 13 and 16, Brady took an incredible interest in World War II, particularly the Nazis. They were the subjects of all the books he read and all the conversations he would have. Even when playing war with his pals, he insisted on being an SS trooper. Ooh. Also during these years, Brady was charged on three counts of breaking and entering. Mm-hmm. On the third one, the judge decided not to give him time in a juvenile facility so long as he moved to Manchester to live with his mother, his birth mother, Ooh. Peggy, and her husband, Patrick Brady. He hadn't seen Peggy for four years since she stopped coming around, Mm -hmm. and he had never met her husband, Patrick. It was the final months of 1954 when Ian moved to Moss Side to start again. Ian's strong Scottish accent branded him as an outsider in the tight-knit community, and he withdrew further into himself than ever before. He didn't particularly like his stepfather, Patrick, but he took the job Patrick found him as a porter at the local market. Can't hate on that, man. No, got him a job and everything. Ian's sense of being an outcast deepened, and his only relief was in books such as Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and the works of Marquis de Sade and more pulpy, sadistic, smutty books like The Kiss of the Whip and Mm -hmm. The Torture Chamber. He'd finally found something he could relate to, Mm -hmm. something that made him excited. This sounds like he liked to be the black sheep too. I think he. I think he, we all know those people that are yeah. uh, like more happy when they're depressed, when they're the outcast. Mm. You know what I mean? We know those type of people, and they're usually miserable fucks mm-hmm. for sure, because they think that because they're an asshole that it's the world's problem. You know. <laughs> a little over a year after moving to his new home at Moss Side, Brady returned to his life of crime. He left his job as a porter and was working in a brewery when he was arrested for aiding and abetting a fugitive. Mm. His employers had also discovered he had been stealing cases and cases from the warehouse. Of Trulies. Of of Trulies. (laughs) The courts weren't as lenient as they'd been previously and sentenced him to two years in a Borstal facility, which is a British juvenile facility. They're called Borstals, okay? Uh Problem. There were no openings at any Borstals for three months, so he was sent to Strangeways Prison in Manchester at the age of 17 to wait for a spot. So he had to go back to where they was alienating him too. He went to a real prison to wait for a spot at a boys' prison is what Mm -hmm. happened. He went to one of the hardest prisons in Britain to wait for a spot at a juvenile facility. Yeah, that's gladiator camp. He got a hell of an education from real-ass convicts. Yeah, prisons are not to help you. It is not rehabilitation. Yeah, it's not. It's gladiator camp. After a spot opened, he was moved to Hatfield Borstal in Yorkshire, where obviously the rules and security were much lighter than real prison. Mm-hmm. Ian took advantage of this reduction in security by brewing his own booze and running a sports book out of his cell. A drunken scuffle with a guard landed Ian in a much harder borstal inside of Hull Prison. Here he took advantage of his surroundings, using the rest of his sentence to get as criminally smart as possible. Mm. When he got out, he intended to make a great deal of money illegally. Hell yeah. Upon his release in 1957, his family noticed he was even more silent and withdrawn than ever. He spent several months unemployed before finally securing a job as a laborer for just six months. All the while, he continued to try to hatch a criminal scheme that would make him rich. He used bookkeeping skills he learned in prison for legitimate use in 1959 when he began working as a stock clerk Mm -hmm. with Millward's Merchandising. A little more than a year later, a cute new secretary named Myro was hired. Myro. Myro. It's our girl Myra. She's coming. She's in this. She's back in the story now. She stumbled in the side door and slapped me in the head with Myra's demo. Did, uh, Felt like a did, drunk bomb. What the, do I uh, know? Looney Tunes. Elmira. Yeah. Was that based? Oh, Probably <laughs> loosely not. Loosely based? Likely not. But maybe. Jesus, maybe. Would they go that far? Would Looney Tunes go that far? Let's look at the correlations. Let's play the feud. 
According to Myra, their first meeting was the beginning of an immediate and fatal attraction. Others saw Ian Brady as morose and sullen. Myra Hindley, however, saw him as silent and aloof, constantly thinking about the problems of the world. She would describe him as an intelligent owl. Every night since their meeting, she would write in her diary of her desire to woo Brady and make him hers. Brady was disinterested for over a year. At the office Christmas party, Ian Brady got drunk and asked Hindley out on their first date. This would be phase one of him trying to brainwash her into his secret world. Mm -hmm. That first night, he took her to see Judgment at Nuremberg, which was a movie based on the uh, Nuremberg trials, the Jewish tribunals for, mm. for war criminals after World War II. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, not cool. No, I mean, weird. Yeah. <laughs> As the weeks went by, he introduced her to records of Hitler's marching songs and encouraged her to read his two favorite books, Mein Kampf and Crime and Punishment. Mein Kampf, of course, do you know what that is? About my fucking you? Mein Kampf is uh, Hitler's autobiography that he wrote. Mm. This guy's a real Hitler head. Like you said, he's a Nazi head. Hindley was more than happy to do it. She had waited so long for something different, and this certainly was different. Brady was her first lover, and she was soon living exclusively for him, soaking up all of his morally objectionable philosophical theories. Mm -hmm. All she wanted to do was make him happy even changing the way she dressed for him, starting to incorporate long boots and miniskirts and bleaching her hair to look more like a Nazi. Mm, so she didn't object to anything this dude said. No, she went right along with it. That shit not cool neither, though. No. That shit would make me mad. Yeah, you know. could you stop? Like, object. But that's what made him so much braver, was that his his follower, his, like, followership was one person. And she was all about everything he said. So he was just like, well, let's just keep escalating. He was trying to manipulate her from the beginning anyway, so. And she was fucking open to it. That's a match made in heaven for him. Yep, he probably ended up like it anyway. Hell yeah. For real, for real. She allowed him to take sexy pics of her and sexy pics of the two of them fucking. Since she was soaking up everything he was saying and agreeing vehemently, it didn't take long for Brady's ideas to become outrageous. Does she still have a square ass at this point? Yeah. But Myra only ever agreed with him. When he told her there was no God, she gave up church. When he told her that rape and murder were not wrong, but were in fact the supreme pleasures, she didn't question it. She was now nothing more than an extension of him. Mm -hmm. Myra's family and friends quickly noticed the change. At work, she became surly, overbearing, and aggressive. She began to wear kinky clothes, as her co-workers said. She went around claiming she hated children babies, and all people, which is a, a complete flip in her personality. Yeah, yeah. Early in 1963, Ian Brady put Myra's blind obedience to the test. He began plotting a bank heist and needed her as a getaway driver. Immediately, Myra went out and took driving lessons, joined the rifle club, and purchased two guns. Ooh. The robbery never happened, but Brady's true purpose was fulfilled. Myra was willing and able to say how high when he told her to jump. Hell yeah. According to Ian, he had, quote, reached the stage where whatever came to mind, I was going to go out and do it. I led the life that other people could only dream about. End quote. Damn. On the night of July 12th, 1963, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley killed their first victim, 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Damn. These motherfuckers is sick. Pauline was on her way to a dance at the Railway Workers Social Club on the night she disappeared. She had originally planned to go with three of her friends, Linda, Barbara, and Pat, but at the last minute, when their parents learned there would be booze available, they were no longer allowed to go. <laughs> Determined not to miss her chance at a fun night out, Pauline decided to go it alone. At 8 p.m., dressed in her prettiest pink dress, Pauline left home, what she didn't know was that her girlfriends Pat and Dorothy had seen her leave. They were curious to see whether Pauline would really have the guts to go to the dance by herself. They decided to follow her, and when they were almost to the club, Dorothy and Pat took a shortcut to arrive in front of the club first so they could surprise Pauline before she went in. But Pauline never arrived. When she still didn't arrive home at midnight, 
Her parents, Joan and Amos, went out to hit the pavement looking for her. Mm. They called police the next morning when the night-long search failed to turn up any results. A police search, of course, was just as fruitless. It seemed that Pauline had simply vanished into thin air. <laughs> and this is the investigators. She vanished into thin air. Man, that bitch poofed away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the first day. Aren't you supposed to give 48 hours before you say that? The second child disappeared on November 11th, 1963. 12-year-old John Kilbride and his friend John Ryan had gone to the movies that afternoon. Mm. When the film got out at 5 p.m., they went to the market to see if they could earn some pocket money helping the stall holders pack up their goods. John Ryan left John Kilbride standing beside a garbage bin near the carpet dealer stall to go catch his bus home. This would be the last time anyone saw John Kilbride. When John didn't make it home for dinner, his parents called the police. For the second time, a major search was conducted, with police and thousands of volunteers combing surrounding areas for any clues to the disappearance. None were found. Mm. All his parents knew for certain was that John did not come home. Mm. Did they ever say how they lured these kids? Stop trying to activate my trap cards early, Herschel. <laughs> the luration, the lurization. <laughs> Six months later, another kid went missing. On Tuesday, June 16th, 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett went to his grandma's home to spend the night as he did every Tuesday. As his grandma's was only a mile away, he walked by himself. Mm-hmm. His mom watched him over the crossing until he disappeared from view about a half mile away, and then she went to the bingo hall in the opposite direction. That was kind of the Tuesday tradition. Mm -hmm. Send the kid over to grandma's, mom goes out to bingo and has a few drinks. Keith never arrived at his grandma Winnie's house. She assumed that his mom decided not to send him that night. Keith's disappearance wasn't discovered until the next morning when grandma Winnie arrived at her daughter's home without Keith. The police were called, search was conducted, Again, the child disappeared without a trace. (laughs) Another six months went by before the fourth child, 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey, went missing. It was Boxing Day, 1964. That's December 26th, like I said. Mm -hmm. Leslie went with her two brothers and some friends to the local fair, only 10 minutes away. They hadn't been there long before all their pocket money was spent, and they were bored. All but Leslie left for home. A classmate saw her at half past five standing next to one of the rides. Mm. When Leslie Ann didn't return home by dinner time, her mom and fiancé began searching for her. They called the cops, and when they couldn't find any sign of her, the countryside was searched, thousands of people were questioned, and missing person posters were displayed all over, but no new leads were discovered. Is that the, the sound like the first time they put up missing posters? That's, it is. That is what it, it sounds like. It would say, like, to me, after the... Okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, the first one. But after that second one... Let's get some posters. Yeah. And, let, and warn people, like, yo. Let's talk about it on the radio. Yes. On the television. On. Put some posters up. Yeah. Drive a truck around with, like, a siren. You see, like, the cops be the serial killer's friends. It would be ten more months until the truth would come out. Leslie Ann's naked body was found in a shallow grave with her clothing at her feet. The police had nothing to connect Brady and Hanley to this, but hearsay and circumstantial evidence. They needed much more. They went back over the house at Wardlebrook Avenue on October 15th and got the evidence they were looking for. Mm. A luggage storage ticket was found in a prayer book at their home, and that led cops to a locker at Manchester Central train station. Inside were two suitcases filled with porno and sadistic paraphernalia. Damn. In and amongst the smut were nine semi-pornographic images of Leslie Ann Downey, showing her naked and bound and gagged and in a variety of poses in Myra Headley's bedroom. There was also an audio tape recording found. The voice of a girl could be heard screaming, crying, and begging for her life. Two other voices, one male and one female, could be heard threatening the child. Police were able to identify the adult voices as Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, but they needed Leslie Ann's mother to listen to the tape of her daughter's last moments to positively ID her voice. Mm -hmm. That's fucked up. Yeah, and I guess they need that to make sure this ain't something they just making up. Even with all this evidence mounted against them, Brady and Hindley denied murdering Leslie Ann. 
just like they did with Edward Evans. The couple attempted to implicate David Smith as the killer. They claim Smith brought the girl over to take porn photos. The tape recording was of their voices as they attempted to get the girl to calm down and photograph her. As far as they knew, Leslie Ann had left their house unharmed with David Smith, and he must have been the one to murder her after yeah. they left. So we did the porn shit. And we were just thing. trying to calm her down. <laughs> and we did the child pornography. Yeah, we didn't rape or kill her, yeah. though. We just did the one thing. Yeah. So we good? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll see you later? All right. Yeah. <laughs> there was also evidence found linking Ian and Myra to the murder of John Kilbride. It wasn't as much of a slam dunk as the photos and tape recording, but it was enough to bring a charge. They found the name John Kilbride written in Brady's handwriting in his notebook and a photo of Myra on John's grave at the Moors, like just Mm. standing there. It was also found that Myra had rented a car on the day of John's disappearance and returned it the same day muddy as fuck like it had been driving around some fucking Moors. Police were still unable to find the other two bodies or any evidence linking Brady and Henley to their disappearances, they had to be content with prosecuting the couple only for the murders of Edward Evans, Leslie Ann Downey, and John Kilbride. Mm-hmm. On April 27, 1966, Himley and Brady were tried at Chester Assizes. I don't know. It's called Chester A-S-S-I-Z-E-S. Assizes, maybe. It's some British fucking silly islander shit, brother. <laughs> they were tried at Chester Assizes. <laughs> Chester Assizes. Where they pleaded not guilty to all charges. Throughout the trial, they continued trying to blame David Smith for the murders. This didn't help their public opinion. Everyone saw them as cowardly idiots. At no time during their trial did they show any remorse or sorrow for the families of their victims. And wasn't the dude dead? David Smith? Did they try to blame? No, no, no. That's the one from the very first one. The one that he went over to get the Trulies. And then he ran away with his wife. They try to blame it on a dude and don't even know. <laughs> He's like not even close to them. <laughs> He's somewhere chilling. <laughs> they keep coming up. <laughs> and what? Oh my goodness. Poor bastard. That's how you know they did it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Because you're not supposed to. T- Were you. You're supposed to keep it neutral. Like, I don't know who did it. Yeah. Were you study trying to blame somebody else? Say, wasn't me, and I have no clue. That's like and you still you telling yourself it's we David did. Smith. It's David Smith. Yeah, and but you're still telling we did th- this crime and that was it. We took the photos. Yeah, that's the only crime we committed. We put ball gags on her, but whatever. We certainly didn't rape her and, and bury her yeah. in a moor. And that's why they don't believe him. Because if you would do child pornography, you'll kill him. Yeah, that's what I think. Especially you know the the child is leaving. You already don't see them as, like, human beings. You see them as sex objects, so it doesn't take much more of a leap of faith to kill a sex object. You don't want to throw it away. You don't want to judge a book by its cover, but I'm pretty sure when you see them, like, how they looked and stuff, how they look, uh, you guys are pretty scuzzy. Yeah. 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 Despite constant protestations of their innocence, Ian Brady was found guilty on all charges. Myra Hindley, however, was found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans and guilty of harboring Brady in the knowledge that he killed John Kilbride. They escaped the death penalty by four weeks as it had been abolished with the passing of the Murder Act of 1965. Mm-hmm. And that was basically a Britain-wide banning of death penalty. Mm-hmm. Ian Brady quickly accepted his sentence and settled into prison life. Myra continued to assert her innocence, continuing to claim that Brady and David Smith were the only ones responsible for the murders. (laughs) Right after sentencing, she began her appeals process and was denied all of them as the Court of Appeals declared its satisfaction that no miscarriage of justice had occurred. Thirteen years later, in 1978, Brady made his first public statement since being locked up. He declared he had no intention to apply for parole as he accepted the weight of the crimes both Myra and I were convicted of, justifies permanent imprisonment, regardless of personal remorse and verifiable change. End you know quote. what? It's like I'm claiming this kind of thing. Yeah. 
I accept it. Yeah. I accept you that. You know I've how like I, a bad boy. like a bombing or something. Like oh, I claim that bomb. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did it. Mm-hmm. Right? No, no parole because that is because parole make it say like I'm not claiming it now. Exactly. Like, but I do. Oh no, that's kind of some Nazi shit. That's pretty Nazi shit. Myra's application for parole kept getting delayed by three years at a time. Finally, in 1985, after 20 years in prison, Myra was put before a parole board who bounced her ass back to prison with a big red rejected stamp. In private, parole board members would say that she should serve at least another 15 years before even being considered. Early in 1987, Hinley had a whole new plan of attack. She copped to being aware of all five murders, but not being involved in any of them, in a full published confession. This confirmed to police their suspicions that the remains of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett had been buried somewhere in the moors. Neither Myra nor Ian were able to pinpoint exact locations, but Pauline's body was finally found on July 1st, 1987. It was identified by her pretty pink party dress. According to Ian Brady, Myra had tricked Pauline into going to the moors with them by offering her 30 records, audio records that is, if she helped find a lost glove. Once on the moors, Brady arrived on his motorcycle and the couple raped and beat the girl to death and then buried her. Damn. Keith Bennett was never found, but Myra's confession gave his family some indication of how he died. Myra lured him to the car with a request for help loading some boxes. Once at the moor, Brady took Keith down the gully to a stream where he raped and strangled him, burying him somewhere nearby. As for Leslie Ann Downey, Hinley places herself away from the scene at the moment of the murder, claiming she had been in the bathroom when Brady raped and strangled her. Likely story. Mm -hmm. Brady, on the other hand, claims Hinley performed the strangulation with her bare hands while he raped her. This version most closely corresponds with the events that are on the audio tape recovered. (laughs) You say you what, devil. We got your audio being there. You're on tape, idiot. Yeah. They never found the other guy, and that's because they Keith just don't. Bennett. They just yeah, they don't d- know where. He yeah, the little him. boy. Yeah, they don't know where he buried him. They know that he raped and strangled him down by the goalie, but they either the uh, sea like came okay. and washed him away. away. Yeah, that, okay, which probably what happened. Probably, and it had been twenty four years since his yeah, murder. It would be decomposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God damn. Finally. In 1987, the prison system bowed to public opinion and announced that Hindley would never be allowed parole for the rest of her life, along with a list of 23 other inmates, including Ian Brady, mm-hmm. her former partner, Peter Sutcliffe, who was a fuckface, and Dennis Nilsson, who we covered on uh, episode four way, way back mm-hmm. in the day, way back in the day. Myra Hindley died at age 60. According to the November 16th, 2002 story on BBC News Online, (laughs) Hindley died from respiratory failure arising from a serious chest infection after a suspected heart attack just two weeks previous. This is 2002. R.I.P. bitch. Yep, this bitch died in 02. And they couldn't revive her from a a chest infection? (laughs) Did they get antibiotics? Hindley who had previously suffered from angina and osteoporosis, Mm. died at approximately 5 p.m. GMT, having received the last rites from a Catholic priest. A prison service spokesman said Hindley's next of kin had been informed of her death, although the official cause of death has already been determined. A routine coroner's inquest was held as Hindley was still officially in custody at the time of her death, and all the coroner's inquest showed was uh, angina, heart failure. Okay, that's okay. Brady died a little more recently in May 15, 2017, of natural causes. He was cremated without ceremony, and the ashes were dumped in the sea at night. Why at night? So nobody could really pay him any... They didn't feel he deserved any sort of respect or remembrance or anything. Okay. So they just kind of threw him away and were done with it. I can agree with that. He just threw his ass into the garbage. <laughs> like uh, uh, Always Sunny. That's the way that Frank, Danny DeVito's character wants to go. Like, just throw me in the garbage. What's the point in a funeral? What's the point? There is no point. Yeah, I guess. I mean, don't, it's don't cool to have money. a party. Like, have a party, but you don't like yeah, need to Don't waste cream- the money on yeah. a box. And- cremate, cremate me for sure. Don't fucking keep me six foot four in a box. That would be, that's a huge waste of space and money. Throw me in the oven. 
Turn me into little ashes and sprinkle me around. That's your job now. You have to do that. <laughs> me? Today. Me? Yeah. By yeah. myself? Yeah. I don't think... All right, man. Turn it. Preheat that motherfucker up. <laughs> I think Preheat can, that we'll motherfucker. Royal 500. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to keep it safe. I think I would just start on fire. I don't think I'd ever turn into ashes or no, anything. None, none that. None that. Uh, you need super hot. It's too much, man. Ooh. I got to piece you out. No, we were just being taken over by aliens there. Yeah. Uh, all right, everybody. That's going to do it for all of us here yeah. at Bumblebutt Podcast X. You, X, X. You, and you, and, and you, and you. you. <laughs> all X. We, uh, my name has been Adam. A-bomb. That, of course, has been Herschel. H-bomb. We will see you uh, uh, next week for another brand new episode yes, of the Bumblebutt Podcast X. We'll see you then. Bye, 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 bye. Yep.